Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Owetu Makatini. Owetu is an entrepreneur, a writer, and a womanist. As a social media specialist, strategist, and trend forecaster in the advertising industry, her work has helped build digital literacy in that field. Part of this was achieved by her founding a creative consultancy, Makatini Media. Awetu is also a freelance writer and public speaker, in other words, an all-round creative entrepreneur. Her writing has featured in both Feminism Is and Living While Feminist, and in the Living While Feminist piece, she says, If one's practice of feminism is motivated by cheap sloganisms and is used to further the agendas of those already swimming in privilege, then we have another problem. And in her piece in Feminism Is, advocating for the legitimacy of black women's anger, Owetu says, My politics and existence are resistance of respectability and a full embrace of fluidity. So today I'm going to be talking with Owetu about a range of things, not least anger and intimate justice. Welcome, Owetu. Hello, thank you for having me. So let's go back in time to 2018, or rather in 2017, when you submitted the piece for Feminism Is, um, which was about anger and the legitimacy of that feeling. And in that piece, you say, Black radical feminism provided legitimacy. My anger has provided a different kind of solidarity. I am normal. I'm responding to the sickness. Rightfully so. I should be mad. So it's three years since you wrote it and two years since it was published and the world has pretty much been turned upside down since then. (laughs) And I wonder if you are still feeling angry in 2020 and if so, whether the content and expression of your anger is still the same as it was back then. I feel the same kind of anger, but I think that I've, instead of internalizing the anger and feeling as if it belongs to just me, I've been able to name the things that are making me and other black women justifiably angry and realizing that we don't have to be everybody's everything all of the time. So I guess it's 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 a pushback in a different way um, by instead of internalizing that anger, trying to live um, you know, as unapologetically as possible while realizing that it's completely valid to be angry. I think When I share pieces with my friends that I've written or we have long three-hour conversations about what's going on in the world and our place in the world as black women, very often there's like a relief of like, oh, you know, I thought I was crazy or this happened to me at work. And to be able to name it and be like, no, you know, that systemic, um, the system that you work under is systemic. You know, it's not necessarily something wrong with you. The anger is there. Definitely. Um, And I don't feel bad anymore about being an angry black woman. I think I felt as if, you know, it was a silencing tactic, you know, which it is, where, you know, people want to box you as, you know, an angry black woman as if, you know, you don't have valid reason for being upset. It's we are systematically being bludgeoned 
in every single way, whether it's in the legal way, whether it's the, the writing and framing of policy, whether it's taking a taxi, whether it's working, it's systemic. And so I definitely am angry. And now I'm angry in a, in a whole different way. But I think that it, it's an anger that I don't allow to corrode at me. It's something that I understand to be outside of me, even though it's productive, even though I can channel it into my writing or my workouts or getting justice in some way. It's I was talking to my mom about this too, about the idea of giving people back their things. Like if if someone is projecting something on me, that's not mine to carry. And I think black women have been, you know, taught that you have to carry things for people, alchemize them, give them back to them in a way that is palatable, you know, and I'm saying, and I've always said, fuck that, you know, and I think we spend so much time trying to figure out why people are being horrible to us, and we don't get time to bloom, you know, like Toni Morrison talks about racism being a distraction, you know, I think about all of these amazing, prolific black authors that could have written us into new worlds, but they had to write and theorize and teach you know, about racism and Jim Crow and apartheid. And it's just like, we've lost out on so so many Black creative, Black elders who could have written us into the future. One of the things that I thought was really important that you said was that you've, no, you've decided to no longer inter- internalize your anger. And in your piece, you actually spoke about having to repackage your rage. And I wonder what that meant for you at the time and what the impact of repackaging your rage and making it nicer for everybody around you is on you as an individual. You know, there's, there's so much shame associated with, with being emotional, emotional with, with being vulnerable, with being scared, with being sure, with being confused, you know we oftentimes find ourselves in, in situations where people have done things to us, but we carry that shame, you know, whether it's, you know, racism or, or just people being mean or people being abusive, whatever it is. Um, so I think I, it made me recalibrate and I wanted to be successful on purpose and to say, it, it's not me, it's you. One concept that I found very helpful that I learned from a book by Judy Clippen on adult children and then her later book on burnout was this idea that many people have, which is if I were better, it would be better. And the impact of that belief is that then you keep trying and trying and trying to be better and wondering why it is that you're still feeling low or suffered, suffering or like you're not getting ahead. But I think it's so important that you've pointed out that you can be the best human being that you can be in an oppressive system and you can still lose. Um, so I think it's really good that you've um, identified that. So, yeah, I think repackaging that was was me wanting to be better. You know, like there's this adage in the Black community that you have to be twice as good to get half as much. And I think I, I had internalized that and I took that on you know, more than anyone should. So, yeah, that's what it meant for me at the time. And I think I leaned into that. I leaned into working harder. I leaned into being successful. I leaned into my independence a lot more. That's, you know, around the time that I started marketing media. Um, so I, I felt 
that I needed to own myself, own my production, own my creativity way more um, than I had before because I, I, I didn't understand until then how insidious um, oppression is or was and how it, it could be. It did take a toll on me because I worked my ass off for a long time. I remember I moved into a new place and I was at, at living at that place maybe one day a week because I was traveling so much and I was here, I was there, I was everywhere because I wanted to prove to myself and I guess the publication or those people in the publication, you know, to say, I I, I work hard. If you give me the right conditions, I can do amazing things. It's it's not me. So, I mean, it helped in that way. The doing well became internalized more than a performance. So I think it helped in that it it, it gave me my confidence back to own my productions but then also it kind of made me go wow like people are not good you know so yeah you also spoke in that essay about respectability politics why did you think it was important to talk about respectability politics in an essay that was mostly about anger um i think the way that black women are socialized it's very puritanical you anything that we do as black women is vulgar. We laugh too loud, our shorts are too short, our bums are too big, our breasts are too big. You know, we're sexualized from such a young age. And I think that really frames the way that you uh, experience yourself. You know, everything you do feels like it's too much. You know, we, I, I, I went to, you know, like a, I guess what people call a model C school, where, you know, even white teachers would, you know, police us to the point where you, you actually ended up policing yourself. So I think it was important to speak on that because there was there's so much um, shame around taking up space. You know, black, black girls are socialized to be the help, essentially, to help out, to help the household, to help all the time. And we don't often have time to... Yeah, to experience ourselves and our true nature. So I thought it was important to bring up respectability politics because we police ourselves too. Even in the black community, it's it's like elders scoff at women who are free, you know, women who have long nails, who drink beer, who don't want to get married, who have kids out of wedlock, who don't have kids at all, who wear short shorts. So, you know, it's almost like, oh, geez, look at that, you know. What did she expect? You know, you know, so it's it's that kind of policing all the time. And black girls police themselves all the time. You know, I often have to go, you know, I can do this. Like, geez, you know, I didn't wear shorts for, I mean, I still don't wear shorts, actually. Uh, because of that, like the, the idea that, you know, our bodies are up for consumption and anything that happens will I was wearing shorts or I was wearing a crop top or whatever. So even now I have a complex about wearing shorts. Can you imagine? And we live in South Africa, a, a country that gets like 80% sunlight or something. And I have a complex about wearing shorts just because I think when I was younger, somebody was made a comment about my thighs or something. And I just felt, oh, this is just, oh, I never want to experience this again, you know? Um, And, and I, now I don't wear shorts. I mean, I'm, damn near 30, 30 years old. I mean, I'm 27 years old and I still have a complex about wearing shorts in public because of that experience of just a, a, a comment 
So I think it was important for me to talk about respectability politics because black girls are socialized into taking up the least amount of space as possible, performing huge amounts of invisible labor. Um, so we police ourselves, we police our expression. We don't want to be too much of that. I mean, there was that court case a few years ago of those those black women who are kicked off that wine tour for laughing too loudly. And I mean, it seems ridiculous. You're just like, what? You're on a wine tour. You're going to have fun. You're going to laugh. I mean, really? But it's that kind of thing permeates into every single piece of socialization when it comes to little black girls. You know, our hair is too kinky. Our noses are too big. We're laughing too loud. Even when we're angry, it's just like we're sulking, we're grumpy, we're aggressive. We're already coded as these people who are really about to snap. So, it you know, it's a silencing tactic to be like, oh, here we go again. But it's justified. It's justified if somebody makes you angry to be angry. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I thought it was important to raise that there because very often, you know, black women don't play up into that anger because you're angry. You come into the office and you greet, you're angry already. Jeez, what got mm-hmm. into you? So I thought it was important to say, I'm mad, I'm mad, and I'm going to talk about it because we we often police ourselves out of protecting ourselves. We police ourselves into more corners when we speak up for raises or being underpaid or whatever it is. Suddenly it's like, oh, where was this before? Or, you know, and it's just like, this has been happening. Black women are, have, have been expected to swallow everybody's everything and be everyone's everything all the time while being, you know, surveyed and policed. And I thought, no, fuck that, man, I'm mad, you know. So you were, you are, you legitimately mad. And then you discover that feminism isn't going to meet all of the needs or it isn't accurately identifying the reasons why you're mad. And so you come upon the idea of womanism. So for people who are listening who may not have heard of womanism, could you tell us why it's a more useful tool for you and what it means? So womanism to me is, and this is what I say often to people who ask me about it, I don't ever want to hyphenate my existence. If I'm going to align myself with an ideology that is supposed to encapsulate what it means for me to be me right now, I don't want to hyphenate that. I don't want to call myself a black something. I don't want to ever call myself a black feminist. If I'm a feminist, my blackness, that part of my identity should be already included in this basket of goods that I'm I'm identifying with and carrying. And in my experience, um, feminism doesn't do that, um, whether it's from an interpersonal um, side or whether it's um, policy or how things are written and framed. It's it, just, it doesn't. It's not enough for me. So the idea of womanism, I was just like, mm, there's something missing. There's something that I'm not quite getting here. It's it's enough, but not. It doesn't. It doesn't hit there. 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 At that spot. So doing a lot of reading, researching, maybe I was like 19, 18, where I was like, mm-mm, man, there's something else here. Um, and then I came across Alice Walker and her definition of womanism. And I was like, oh, this, this is it. This is, this is, this is the, and she says something like, I'm going to paraphrase, but something like, um, uh, womanism is to femi- feminism as purple is to lavender. And I was like, oh, my word. 
is there anything else in the world that makes more sense than this? So, and I was reading up on it a lot and I came across um, this site called For Harriet and it spoke a lot about womanism. And I was like, oh my word, this is, this is it. Like, I don't have to say I'm a black feminist. This fully encapsulates my identity, all the intersectionalities of my identities as a black woman. Because, I mean, there's no place where I show up as a, a woman and not black or or show up as black and not a woman, you know, like if you see me, I'm a black woman. So there's no place where I can minus one identity for the time being. It's just, it, it doesn't happen even across class, you know, even if I'm coded as a middle-class or upper middle-class black woman, or even a poor black woman, you are a black woman. There's no, you don't, you don't, you don't get to delete parts of your identity. Like very often black men can when they assimilate into whiteness where they can just be men, you know, and enjoy the benefits of patriarchy. There's nothing like that for black women. As rich as you are, you are, it could be Beyonce, you're a black woman, you know. So, yeah, womanism was like that journey home where I was just like, oh, my word, there's something out there that fully encapsulates my identity, even though, you know, in further investigation, I was like, mm, there's something missing here again because a lot of um, womanist literature is, you know, African-American. So I was like, mm, there's another piece that's missing. And that's when I came across Africana, Africana, um, not Africana, <laughs> Africa, Africana um, womanism, which is obviously womanism that comes out of Africa and theorizing the lived experiences of African women who uh, experience the world in a certain way and that actually led me to the idea of relationship anarchy, matriarchy, and decentering men. Like the idea that women are full whole beings and we can decide what kind of lives we want and we can navigate patriarchy and white supremacy and, and not always be in responding to those things, but leave the house, so to speak, with that identity on. So when I discovered like African womanism, I was like, perfect. This is beautiful. This is what I feel I am. But of course, you know, there's there's nothing like an identity that you have to hold on to or you should hold on to until until you sh- should be always like unraveling and growing because if you identify with something, like if I identify with with feminism, there would be so many things about myself that I didn't know and if I identified purely with womanism, there would be so many things about myself again that I didn't know that I didn't um have the language to name, to experience, to learn, to unlearn. Then going into African womanism and going, oh, okay. When I say womanism, I mean African womanism. I don't have to say, you know, Afro-womanism. It's there because it talks about marginalized identities in the Black um, diaspora. So I'm already there. And I mean, to go back to my original point, I didn't want to hyphenate my existence. When I talk about womanism, it talks about the Black experience in Africa, in the States, in the diaspora, and it's it's fully... Yeah, I'm held, you know, I'm held in that place. Okay, two things. Firstly, it sounds like you need to collate a collection on womanism from South Africa. I would love to. Because I think the way that you are speaking about this is that so much of this discovery has been a process of reading and engaging with people. And I think the important thing there is that if like, if there's no texts that are meeting your needs, then you must produce them. I agree. I look forward to your collection. I will be there for book launches. 
Yes, speaking it into existence. Okay, let's do it. And the second thing is that I'm wondering about how you feel about the term intersectionality because in your piece, you you spoke about your dislike for the term sisterhood because for a long time it had legitimized white women speaking on behalf of or for other women and people of color. So I'm wondering if you think that there is room for sisterhood and solidarity that is intersectional and makes more room for nuance than it has in the past. I think so, definitely. Um, I think learning and reading about texts that highlight my existence has shown me that the 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 most important thing that I've experienced so far is the the idea of the lens that you use and where you start and I think that's been the most important thing to me to not necessarily look at situations like I did before and say how can we fit this into this but more saying at where I am right now and how I understand my friends and my relationship with my friends and my family and women in my life, this is a legitimate point of departure. Me now thinking, you know, being in conversation, this is a legitimate place to start, not necessarily always looking at something external or outside of myself to validate my existence in any way, but to say, it's a good place to start. I'm I'm black now. I'm a woman now. I'm 27 now. This is a good, I'm in South Africa now. This is a good place to start. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for the relationships that I have with other women? What does it mean for the relationship I have with people who identify as other things? What does that mean? So I think, yeah, I think there's definitely a place for sisterhood because of where you start and how things are written and how things are coded and how things are categorized. Often we see that, I mean, with like the decolonization movement, we see how so much nuance was completely missed and misinterpreted because the, of the lens. If you're coming through with the idea that you're an anthropologist and you are the knowledge carrier, anything that you see is going to be something that's outside, exists outside of your norm, and you're going to write and code it that way. But when you, you know, are coming from your identity and coming from a place of being always open to be to learn to be a student to things that you don't understand removing your ego and understanding that you are you know adopting you do as the people do where they are you know when in Rome or whatever so I think that lens is really important and yeah it's really it's I think because we are socialized as as women and black women in particular to always see or seek authority outside of ourselves, whether it's our fathers, our uncles, our husbands, our boyfriends, our male friends, to seek that outside, it makes it very difficult to get to a point where you try to find your own own voice and your own lens and say, it's legitimate for me to feel the way that I do right now. What does it mean? And that's, I mean, I read everything all the time because I don't know. I know that I don't know anything. And there's going to be a poem that's going to crack me wide open. And I'm going to say, geez, this is it. This is the thing. And I'm going to read another poem. And I'm going to say, nope, I don't agree with this. I agree with that. So I'm always engaging with written work because I don't know anything. I, I, I truly know nothing. And you know, the more I read and the more I read all of these beautiful black elders that we have, I'm just like, oh my word, this is so magical. Not just the way that it's been written, but that someone could take something that 
it feels so innocuous and intangible and, and, and grab it out of the sky and put it into words enough so much so that I can go, oh, this is me. This is my friend. This is, you know, that's, 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 it's, it's, that's alchemy to be able to do that. Um, and, and present yourself back to you like that is amazing. So I think the most important thing is the lens. There's definitely a place to, to understand all of the different identities you have and understanding that you, you identifying with something doesn't mean necessarily that you have the authority over that identity. You know, you can be black, but I hold um, privilege as a cisgendered woman. You know, I, I hold privilege as a light-skinned woman in my community. And there's, uh, you know, I hold a lot of privilege in a lot of different ways. So understanding that, I think it, it, it helps you get out of your own head, get out of your own ego, and always know that there's someone experiencing the world completely different to you and being open to seeing what that experience is and working towards a place where everybody feels justified in their existence, feels celebrated, feels held, feels loved in the thing that they are, not making people squish into an identity. It's so difficult to get to that inner knowing, that inner identity, knowing that I'm myself and that's important. Not only is it is it allowed, it's I'm important. I make up the fabric of the world as it is right now. Even though I'm a teeny, 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 tiny piece of the world, my being here makes the world what it is right now. And that's important. Yeah, I mean, capitalism and patriarchy are good bedfellows, right? That they make a lot of money off of making us feel terrible about ourselves all of the time. And that's how <laughs> I'm, I'm reading a book on women and capitalism at the moment. And I'm really wondering if there's any way that this could ever work out. Like, I, don't, I think capitalism is fundamentally based on some people feeling less than and some people being exploited. I mean, it's based on slavery. There's no, there's no way it can be reformed. It's literally, it works because of slavery. That's why it works. Millions of people died. Millions of people died today to sustain it. So there's no reform. Yeah, I mean, one of the other pieces in Living While Feminist talks about the co-option of feminist movements into the capitalist industry and how... For example, people are wearing girl power T-shirts that are made in, in factories by factory workers who are either in wage slavery or extremely exploited. So I think it's impossible to escape that influence of capitalist ideology on how we feel about ourselves. That's interesting to me that, that we've come to this point because my next question to you was going to be around your comments around how much you read and how important it is for you to ground your feminism in theory so that you can defend your principles and learn more about who you are. So I'm wondering who some of the feminist theorists are that you've learned the most from and, and what you would recommend to people listening who maybe want to start on that journey. I, I read everything because I don't know what I don't know. So I try to read, the, I mean, I read things that I don't agree with. I, I, I read things that I'm just like, yeah. I don't know. This seems just very, you know, white suburban female. This is not me at all. But being able to extract certain things from that, I think the the lesson is staying teachable, staying malleable, knowing how to apply things, concepts to your lived reality. I did read a lot of, you know, feminist literature when I was younger because I was so confused. I was just like, 
what in the world? Am I in the twilight? What is going on? Like, why are people upset that I am standing up straight, that I want to be myself? Why does this, why do people feel threatened? This is something to celebrate. This is something to and then you go into like the James Baldwin's who looked at like on an institutional level and on a human level, like, look at me, look at me. Like I'm a, I'm a person just like you, you know, and then you get into the Nikki Giovanni's and then you get into Bell Hooks who talks about love, you know. But I'd say like our, our elders are, 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 are beautiful in that sense. Dozake Shange, Tony Kate Bambara, Lebo Mashile, Pumla Dineo Kola, um, Nomalangam Kize, Feminista Jones. Like, I used to read her blogs like all the time, and I used to be like, oh, oh my word. You know, a lot of the, the my understandings of, you know, feminism and womanism is like online. So I'd, I'd read these long, dense threads by, you know, black women in you know, South Africa and, and America and the diaspora, queer women, actually. I was talking to a friend of mine about this yesterday. I was like, that's where sh- everybody should begin. Begin with queer-led literature because all of these things that we think are impossible to do, queer people have, have done them for <laughs> generations. They, they lived realities already that it's already these things. How can we function outside of the family? It already it exists. You know, people are doing it already. So we're so far behind, you know, um, as a society because we don't listen to queer people. We don't listen to the voices of queer and marginalized people. And that's, I believe, truly the best place to start um, because it, 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 that lens, all the limitations that we have as as a people in the world, we racism, capitalism, white supremacy, it, it it makes everything so black and white that queer literature just adds so much, you know, this is going to be on the nose, but it does add so much color to the world because it makes you realize that everything that you think should be like that doesn't have to be. People are existing, thriving, having, you know, really good, solid, beautiful relationships with each other and the world. Because they exist out they they reject it wholeheartedly because it's got nothing to do, you know, with them. And I think that's where everybody should start. Queer led black literature is the beginning, should be the beginning of everything because it just it collapses every single limitation that you think you you have about how the world should be read and coded hundred and ten percent. So that links really nicely to your piece in Living While Feminist, which was about building a feminist home with good foundations. And one of the first foundations you mention is that your feminist bedroom is founded on intimate justice. What does that mean and look like in the everyday? So when I was doing research for that piece, I came across the idea of intimate justice. And I was just, I was completely blown away by how succinctly people were able to write about the personal being political. Um, And intimate relationships is really where you see where your slip is showing in a lot of ways. You see all the things that you've internalized. You you see all the different ways that you perform your sexuality or your identity. You see the things that you push down. You see the things that you celebrate. All of those different things. for me, the idea of intimate justice was such an eye-opener to see that it's it's fundamental to have 
and understanding that you don't stop embodying all the different identities that you have just because you're in the bedroom. In fact, you bring all of those things with you. And what do those power dynamics mean in an intimate relationship? What does it mean um, to be partnered with someone, whether it's male or female or whatever anyone identifies as? What does it mean to show up to your life, number one, and show up to your relationship where you're building intimacy, but you and your partner are coming into this understanding of love and each other with the identities that make you who you are in the world often you're responding to the way that the world treats you at home you're responding to that in the bedroom in your house you know you don't stop being black you don't stop being woman you don't stop being cisgendered you don't if you're queer you don't stop being queer that's what you are all the time when I was doing research for the for the idea of living while feminist, what does that mean? And trying to break that down in a <clears throat> in a practical way, like what does that look like? How was the power play and dynamics in your sexual identity, in your understanding of yourself as as a partner and a sexual being? What does that mean when you're partnered with someone who's bringing all of those things with them as well? When I thought of, of of writing about living while feminist, what does that actually mean in a way that's really tangible in real life? Like, what does it mean in my house? What does it mean? Who's cooking? Who's putting things away? Is it really possible to have a relationship that is egalitarian? And is it egal? Is it fifty fifty? If you go out into the world and you occupy all of these different privileged positions, and I I'm marginalized way more than you, but I come home and it's 50-50. It can't be 50-50 because I'm depleted already way more than you would have been. You get paid more than me, even if I'm more qualified than you. You know, and I go outside, I'm more in danger than you are. So it can't, we can't do 50-50 in this house. And so it's me coming into all of these realizations and realizing, mm, I need more from this relationship. Sounds like intimate justice is really asking yourself about the influences from outside that come into the inside of your home. And I think that's a feminist project in itself to ask those questions of what you want or whether it's something you've just been told that you should want. Um, so I have three final questions as we end off. The first is you've already given us some book recommendations, but do you have a book that changed your life or that helped you on your feminist journey? I don't know if it helped me in my feminist journey, but The Bluest Eye. I read that and like, oh, it like was a sip of McDonald's Sprite. I was just like, oh, oh my word. It's just to have black writing that was black and that centered black people and blackness. I was shook. So I don't, I don't, I wouldn't, I, I would say that it contributed to my feminist journey because feminism or womanism to me is just a return to self, you know, being able to see yourself and look at yourself. So I would say the bluest eye for me really fiction, just like black fiction really just made me go, yes, there is an alternative. And that understanding of that there is something else and it's written about and it's celebrated means that I'm not wrong. What does that mean now for myself? Then I went into the understanding of like, oh, I'm I'm 
tethered in these ways because I'm a woman. Sharp. I'm tethered in these ways because I'm black. Sharp. So I would say black fiction, black fiction by black queer authors is is what made me the version of myself that I am right now. The second to last question I have for you is, do you have a quote that inspires you or that you live by? Mm, I don't know if, if there's anything that I've read so far that is like, oh, this is me. I think maybe I'm, I'm going to be the one to write it. So let's, uh-huh. let's, let's keep that one in the vault for now. And then the final question for today is, what is your advice for feminists starting out on their journey or continuing as feminists in this really strange and messed up world? I would say it's really important to give yourself grace and to realize that the world in the way that it's designed, it's designed for you to feel inadequate, for you to feel small, for you to feel incomplete. So really being yourself truly encapsulating all that you are, changing the things about yourself that you don't like and leaning into the things about yourself that you love, focus on that because trying to save the world, trying to save your friends, your family, your colleagues, it's going to deplete you and it's going to exhaust you. The things that you want for the world, want them for yourself first and know that you deserve those things. You don't have to negotiate your worth. If the idea comes in your mind that you deserve to live a soft life, then you do and you make it happen and and not wait for people around you to agree with whatever it is that you want to do. You know, people are not going to agree with you because it disrupts how much labor that they can extract from you at any given point. So you are fundamental, fundamental to the world as it exists today. Um, And you're important and you're justified in your rage. Um, And yeah, it's important to give yourself grace and to realize that save yourself Especially if you're if you're a black queer woman, we all we got. Save yourself, save yourself, because that will lead you to people that are also working on themselves. That will lead you to um, communities that are also working for their betterment. So, yeah, you you deserve it. You deserve the the best that the world has to offer, and you should give it to yourself first. And on that uh, last note of self-love, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and for talking with me about your truth and your journey. I really have appreciated the chat with you today. Thank you. You have done an amazing, amazing thing. Each collection, I'm just like, oh, my word. I wish we lived in this big farmhouse and just fed cows and and made big breakfast and just talked and talked and talked about all of these different things because they're so important. It's so important to be held, you know, and your collections and your books really do so much for, for I know a lot of us, me especially. So I want to thank you so much for having me a part mm-hmm. of both of the the collections and also for your own writing. I mean, it's fucking good. So 
thank you for for everything like it's you know to be seen you know to be seen mm-hmm. and to be held is that is feminism that is womanism to to feel as if somewhere in the world there's someone who can prop you up and your work does that so effortlessly so thank you You can find out more about Owetu by following her on Twitter at OwetuMac. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.